Politico did something that all those other startups back in 2007 and 8 were not able to do, which was turn themselves into legitimate, enduring institutions. They deserve credit for that. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, October 28th. Today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about Politico, which has survived and thrived even as other Washington newsrooms commanded more attention. They're doing so well, in fact, that reporting stars who left the organization years ago are coming back. Dylan explains why. And later on, Matt Bellany joins Alex Bigler for another one of her Friday segments. Matt tells us why he loves the entertainment industry and how he went from being a lawyer to editor-in-chief of The Hollywood Reporter. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me powers to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code POWERS. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Friday, everybody. Hope you have some exciting Halloween plans. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers to talk about what he's wearing for Halloween. Dylan, what are you wearing for Halloween? I'm going to be an astronaut (laughs) because my kids want to be astronauts. So we're all going as astronauts. What about you? I'm actually have a wedding this weekend, but whatever uh, costume I would have done this year won't compare to last year's when Katie and I dressed up as Roman Roy and uh, Jerry oh, no. uh, from Succession. Um, uh, yeah, the, the people that got it got it. Most people did not get it, but the people that got it really got it. It was it was uh, it was a good one. Oh my god, that's so puck. That's so puck. <laughs> it's, this is a good point. Anyway, Dylan, I want to talk to you about a piece you have up about Politico's new playbook. Um, there was some big media news, at least in political media circles, this week that Jonathan Martin, disclosure, one of my good friends, left the New York Times. To go back to Politico, where he really made his name back in the day. Uh, he, he was at the New York Times for 10 years. 
kind of shopped around. I was like, I'm going to go back to Rosslyn, Virginia. Not that he'll be living there. And then, you know, that follows Alex Burns, who wrote a really good book with Jay Mart called This Will Not Pass about sort of the transition from Trump to Biden. The thrust of your piece is kind of that, and John Harris, the editor of Politico, gave you a quote to this effect, that there's been all this attention on the Washington Post, the New York Times, especially during the Trump years and other media organizations. And Politico, which was an you know, insurgent upstart when I was working in D.C., has really built a strong business. I think the question of why would Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns go back to Politico is really at the heart of this piece you wrote. So why would a reporter want to go work at Politico right now? There's a lot there, which I think is the raison d'etre for this piece was, was answering that question because I was at Politico when Jonathan Martin left to go to the New York Times. And it was a really big deal because it was the first moment and it would happen again and again and again over the course of the next decade that Politico had produced or cultivated a lot of really great political journalists who are now some of the most famous political journalists of our time, including J. Mart himself, including Maggie Haberman, including Ben Smith. And when J. Mart left, there was this feeling of like, okay, A, he's going to the New York Times and B, he's taking a pay cut to do it. And so the challenge for Politico became, and it happened again when Maggie left and when Burns left and when Ken Vogel left and so on and so forth. We've been so successful. How do we not just become a farm team for other major league franchises like the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and NBC? On top of that, you also have this rift that happened between the leadership in 2016 and you have Jim Vandehei and Mike Allen the most famous of all Politico journalists, going to start Axios. You have probably the best reporters they had left after that, Jake Sherman, Anna Palmer, and John Bresnahan, leaving to start Punchbowl. There have been so many times over the course of Politico's 15-year history when people were leaving, where people were asking, are Politico's best days behind it? What was going on that entire time, as you pointed out, is they were actually building a very sustainable business that could become an institution in its own right that was resilient even among the ebbs and flows of talent retention. And that positioned them for what happened recently, which was the $1 billion sale of the company to Axel Springer, the German media conglomerate. And now all of a sudden, Politico's got some wind in its sails because Axel Springer is actually positioned to do what its original owner, Robert Albritton, was never able to do, which is really like give it the financial resources and the ambition that it needs to become a global media company, a global media institution that can compete with the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and so forth. That is the foundation which made it possible for almost 10 years after J-Mart left to actually bring J-Mart back into the fold, to bring Alex Burns back into the fold. I think there's another thing going on here too, which is more representative of larger market dynamics in the media, and then also just sort of where these two guys are at personally. One, as you and I have discussed on the pod before, the New York Times, despite being an incredibly robust, healthy business, has a very hard time satisfying the ambitions of all of its journalists who want more editorial freedom, more opportunities to do things outside the organization, less interference from the sort of bureaucracy that has long, you know, sort of made working at the Times not enjoyable for everybody. Politico was able to offer that to them 
and also to offer them sort of most importantly, a higher salary than the New York Times was going to offer them. Two notable journalists does not reverse Politico's fortunes in terms of talent retention, but it is a notable moment in saying, okay, Politico can make room for these stars and these stars actually want to work here again because Politico, I don't know if its best days are ahead of it, but they might be. And it's an exciting place to be a part of again. And I think that for those of us who pay attention to these moves in the media or for people who sort of, you know, consumers of news, it's worth noting that Politico did something that all those other startups back in 2007 and 8, the Huffington Post, Vox, whatever, were not able to do, which was turn themselves into legitimate, enduring institutions. They deserve credit for that. Now, does that mean that it was worth paying, you know, what I believe is three hundred fifty dollars to $400,000 a year for a guy like J-Mart? We'll see. I feel like there was a moment where Politico... It, it was never, like, left as a husk when, like, Jonathan and Maggie and Vogel, like, left to go to the New York Times. But it did feel like for a moment there, it was... The newsroom was pretty green. And, like, it's going to be really nice for these journalist veterans to come back and help, you know coach up the next generation of stars. You know, that's like an informal thing that kind of happens when you're in a newsroom and you have colleagues, you know, you work with, you know, you share a byline, you bump into people in the hallways and just like that kind of osmosis. I don't know. That's sort of like how I learned, at least on the campaign trail was from these veteran journalists and just sort of watching them. It wasn't necessarily like, you're going to be my intern. That's right. And, And one through line every time we talk about the news organizations that I write about is that Leadership is really important and it makes a difference, especially for young journalists or people who are not brand name journalists to go into the office and feel like they are working under great leaders or working in the company of really great journalists. And so when you had that situation where J-Mart was leaving and Maggie was leaving and everyone was leaving, it felt like, oh my God, am I, you know, I think for a lot of journalists, like, is, is this still the hot place? Do we still have the hot hand? And I think it helps to to know that whatever the financial circumstances might be, there are some stars back in the building now. And the narrative is no longer that every everybody we get who gets elevated to to prominence and preeminence in this industry is inevitably going to leave us for a more established legacy news organization. And I, I think that helps. One little factoid you mentioned in your piece about Politico is that the CEO of Axel Springer that now owns Politico, uh, Matthias Doffner, is six foot seven. Oh, That's yeah, crazy. man. He looms. He looms. <laughs> Not every CEO is a short king. I feel like there's a lot of short king CEOs who are CEOs precisely because of their Napoleonic complex. But a six foot seven CEO can get away with a lot. He can. Um, and what I'll also say, so as, <laughs> as I bring up in the piece, Matthias is like, he is a globetrotting, jet setting. He likes to party. And he goes to like, Davos and Sun Valley and like, he's that kind of a guy, right? It was so funny at the White House Correspondents Dinner weekend, which was his first back in April, you know, because he's just basically has Politico now. And so he's like in DC and you go to these parties and he's sort of full head and shoulders and chest above the familiar crowd of like people who sit at the round tables of CNN and MSNBC and all the operatives and strategists and handlers just trying to like sort of walk around and make sense of what's going on because it's just not his scene. That's funny. I would have liked to see that. And he's a very imposing figure. You should play for the Mavs or something. They need a shop. That's <laughs> a, just like just a tall, 
media dude. Yeah. All right, Dylan, man. Thanks for your time. Have a great weekend. Thank you, dude. When we come back, Alex Bigler is here with Matt Bellany for Feedback Friday. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everybody. This is Alex Bigler, and I am here with another Friday segment to lead you into the weekend. Last week, Peter Hamby and I basically turned the Friday segment into a fan episode about Matt Bellany. Oh, stop. Really? So I am very pleased to share the surprise that I actually have Matt Bellany on the Friday segment today. So thanks for joining, Matt. Sure, no problem. So you write what I'm hearing for Puck, and you come on The Powers That Be, you have your own amazing podcast on the Ringer Network called The Town. You are a must-read for anybody who is interested in media and entertainment. And for our listeners today, I'd love to dig into kind of how you got involved in the industry and what attracts you to it. So in the spirit of cinema and entertainment, I would love to paraphrase a question that William Miller asked Russell Hammond in the iconic film Almost Famous. What do you love about the entertainment industry? Yeah, what's not to like? I mean, it touches all of our lives and everybody who works in it is crazy. I mean, the fact that this is a business that is filled with 99 no's before you get a yes, that necessarily makes everyone completely insecure, anxiety-ridden, and crazy. And it's also a creative business. I've always been attracted to uh, creative people and create the creative business and this melding of commerce with creativity, because it's really difficult. If this business was run by pure creative people, there would be no business. And if it was run by pure business people, there would be no product. So it's that the way the push pull of those two forces works as a tug of war that is fascinating to me. Julia Alexander was talking to me about this, and maybe you did too. And sort of a great example of what you're saying is how the old Star Wars films worked really well because George Lucas didn't have full control. He had business people that he had to answer to. That's a perfect example of a film that nobody wanted to make, 
Ned Tannen at, at Fox took a chance on it. Ultimately, George's vision is what turned into a franchise that ended up allowing George to sell the company for $4 billion to Disney. You know, you can't predict it. That's what's crazy about Hollywood is that the the most careful attempt to put all the right pieces in place to create a valuable piece of intellectual property will almost definitely fail. But then out of nowhere can come some piece that nobody thought would be successful and it turns into Game of Thrones or it turns into Stranger Things or it turns into these massive franchises. Harry Potter was written by a, a woman who was down on her luck and, you know, homeless at one point. And look at what that became. You never know. Something that I love about your writing that feels like all of our readers really love about your writing is um, you come at it from so many different angles. You have the fan angle, but you also have a business angle and a legal mind angle. And so I'm wondering if you could walk our readers through your background and how you became involved in the entertainment industry. Sure. I mean, I've always loved movies and TV, but I was never a critic type. I met my taste. I always tell people is pretty pedestrian. It's more commercial. I am not the guy to talk to. If you want to know what's going to be on the critics top 10 list, that's not me. Um, I have developed a pretty good sense of what the Academy likes for Oscar season. So I can kind of tell which movies are going to be good for them. But I was always interested in entertainment and I was always interested in media as well. And I had a little, I had a background in journalism before I went to law school after college, was going to either be a journalist or a lawyer. And I figured I would go to law school and be a lawyer first because it's really hard to go back once you've started in a career. Practice law for about five years at an entertainment litigation firm in Santa Monica, where I represented mostly talent, you know, actors, filmmakers, people that were in disputes with studios or media companies, either over money or the use of their name and likeness, or, you know, they were optioning a book and didn't get paid what they thought they were going to get paid, disputes like that. So after about five years of that, I decided I wanted to be in media full time. So I went to The Hollywood Reporter and started covering entertainment law at first. Thought I'd be there a couple of years, then leave. I ended up being there 14 years. I became the editor-in-chief for the last four and a half, five of those. And then I left in 2020 and started the Puck experiment with the group of guys in New York that were doing that. The Great Puck experiment, I think, is what it's properly called. I was so fascinated when you told me your experience from loving entertainment, going to law school, practicing into journalism because I just thought it was a really unique path. And I think that you can hear that path in your writing and your reporting um, and how you think about all of the different angles. So, Well, definitely help being a lawyer in the business because I got access to how the money is made. It's a very specific business and there are a lot of things that are hidden from public view. You know, you see the weekend box office report on Monday, but you don't actually see what's called the actuals, you know, on how the money is actually made when it's gone through all of its distribution channels, be it theatrical box office or pay-per-view or being licensed into a package of movies that is sold overseas. All the different revenue streams for a movie. But if you are the director of a big movie, like I, when I was a lawyer, I represented Peter Jackson against mm. the studio that made The Lord of the Rings. Huh. Um, not me personally. I was on a team that did this. But as part of that litigation, it came out exactly how much money they were making on this franchise. And it was a lot of money. 
And Peter Jackson was owed a certain amount per his contract. And some of these profit definitions on big contracts could be 20, 30 pages long, where there's literally only a handful of people at the studio who even understand how to pay this person. So naturally, there's going to be disputes and the studios add fees and famous Hollywood accounting stuff. By doing that, I got to know a lot about the business and all aspects of the business, from film, television, games, and you know, emerging media to the different license fees that are paid. And it really helped me when I became a journalist because I had a leg up on the average reporter. And a lot of the lawyers, especially in town, wanted to talk to me because at least there was the appearance that I would know more about what I was talking about than the average person. I don't know if that was always the case, especially at first. But a lot of the executives and lawyers at least felt more comfortable because I had that background. I feel like sometimes when people work in industries that they love as a fan, that seeing how the sausage gets made can kind of make you not so keen on that industry anymore. It's the main reason why I don't think I could ever work for Major League Baseball. I love baseball too much. Do you feel that way about entertainment or do you feel like understanding how it worked like made you like it even more? You know, it's sort of separate. My personal tastes are separate from what I write about and what I talk about on the podcast. Like for a perfect example, tonight I'm going to the Wakanda Forever premiere, uh, Black Panther 2. You know, I'm not a Marvel person. I don't typically like those movies. I thought the first Black Panther was actually the best of all the Marvel movies I saw. I thought it was really well done. But I'm going tonight because I think it's important for me to see the movie from the business perspective, it's going to be gigantic, probably one of the biggest movies of the year. And I just think it's important for me as someone who covers the business to be conversant in the things that are successful right now. I, I just feel like I need to know what's important. You know, I'm not a horror movie person at all. But when Jordan Peele's movies started coming out, I said, OK, this is an exciting filmmaker. This is somebody that the business really cares about. I'm going to need to see Get Out. I'm going to need to see Us. I'm going to need to see Nope. So Matt, I've got one last question for you before I let you go into the weekend. I'm wondering, and I ask everyone this question, like what is an article or, or something that you have written about in the last few months that you think is really important, going to be one of the most important things in media and entertainment going forward, but that people aren't paying enough attention to or not focused enough on? Honestly, and it's hard to say this because it has actually gotten a lot of attention, but I don't think weirdly it has gotten enough is the transition of Netflix and Disney plus over to an ad supported model for their streaming business. That is going to just completely change the equation because ad supported is very different from subscription supported everything down to the way that they monetize. Obviously they have two revenue streams, but it changes the kind of content you're making because Disney right now is making these big tentpole movies and TV shows that are based on their IP that they own. And you kind of have to stay subscribed to Disney Plus because every couple months there's something big that you want to watch. That's not how advertising works. Advertising is about time spent on the platform, eyeballs. The more time, the more eyeballs, the more money. So Disney may have to change its strategy and start producing like Netflix does, where it's just a volume business. They're going nuts on producing as much as they can. So people will turn it on, leave it on, and the time spent goes up because that's what's monetizable in an ad-supported model. Now, obviously, the subscription tier is going to exist 
still, but I think a lot of people are going to transition over to the ads and we're going to, uh, we'll see how the content changes, but I think it really will. And you also made a great point that has resonated deeply with me on the the data collection needed for your viewership in order to have a successful ad run business on streaming. Yeah. It's going to all change. Netflix has been very proud of the fact that they don't collect a lot of information about their users. You know, I've had conversations with Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO, where he says, you know, we don't even know if you're a man or a woman. We just know what you watch and we serve you more of what you like based on what you watch. And that is going to change. If they are an advertising company, they need to keep better track of demos and what time of the day you watch and what shows you watch and how that intersects with who you are as a person. All that stuff that's valuable to advertisers and that the other digital giants like Facebook and Google, they do a great job at that. And Netflix hasn't needed to because it hasn't sold ads and now it does. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Friday segment. I really appreciated being able to talk to you and I hope to have you on again sometime soon. No problem. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 